Today, Ezekiel lies on a side for a couple hundred days, he attacks his own hair with a sword, and he eats bread cooked over dung. We also see the world's first UFO. Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, and this is Brandon, and we are pastors here at Gospel Community Church in Santa Cruz, California. Welcome, like, subscribe, comment, and we are getting back into the Bible today in our year-long reading plan of the uh, Old Testament. It's going to be great. If you're still with us, good for you. This yeah, is good for you. This is, you know, you've come, I think, over the hump. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know lots about curves in our world today. And so you've gotten over the, the hardest part, yep. which was Isaiah, Jeremiah, and now you're in this. Ezekiel so much fun. It is. There's something for everyone in the book of Ezekiel. For sure. I agree. There's stuff for, if you like the wrath of God, there's great. Yeah. There's the grace of God. Um, if you like building stuff, there's lots of measurements. That's right. Yeah. If you're a, if you're a uh, what do they call those guys? Construction workers? Yeah. If you're a general contractor, you're going to love this book. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, probably the worst part of the book for me, but and if you're a conspiracy theorist, UFOs, UFOs. So I mean, what's better than UFOs? Yeah, I mean, you uh, educated me on um, people actually take uh, Ezekiel chapter one, and then I can't remember the second chapter, the last one, right, or towards yeah, the end, the end, and looks at the glory of God being shown to Ezekiel, and they say that's a UFO. I gotta say, there's uh, there's a lot of merit to the argument. I guess. Yeah, of course you had you have to read our current you know sci-fi genre back into ancient history but aside from that it's super it's entertaining convincing. yeah it what, is very entertaining. what's the name of the, the the show oh we'll get there we'll get we don't want to spoil this oh, okay fine. this is the, this is just to intrigue people we just want people to, to listen to the rest of it oh, okay you well know? anyway okay well let's get into it where are we yeah, at in the, okay. in the bible we are in the major prophets and we are coming towards the end of the major prophets mm-hmm. so we've, we've been through isaiah jeremiah lamentations yep. and then we're going to deal with daniel soon so ezekiel is um is is just a, a big book. It's a beefy book. There's a lot to it, um, but Ezekiel takes place after Jeremiah. Some, mm-hmm. I, I guess, it sort of overlaps Jeremiah, but it, it kind of extends beyond that. Mm-hmm. And it's a different context. Right. So Ezekiel is actually a person who's in exile. Now he's still he's writing part of this book before the fall of Jerusalem. Right. So maybe kind of confusing, but don't forget there were three different deportations to Babylon, three different right. exiles, three this, different conquerings. Which, which one is this? this? So Ezekiel is taken away in the second uh, exile to Babylon. So there's the first one, which is in 605 BC. That's when some of the nobles are taken captive. So mm-hmm. Daniel and his his buddies, right. right? they're all taken at that time. And then in 597 BC, mm-hmm. remember BC works the opposite way with numbers, <laughs> so it's very confusing. Um 597 BC is the second fall, and that's when Ezekiel is taken. And then 586 is the final third complete fall. Temples destroyed, all that. Right. And then, I mean, not everyone is taken, but you know, yeah, the the full the full amount of people. So Ezekiel is going to be uh, going to be interesting in a lot of ways. So let's talk a little bit about big picture of Ezekiel. What is Ezekiel about? So we've seen a lot of focus in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations on the exile to Babylon. So this has been a big theme. And I think one of the questions that is going to be raised in the book of Ezekiel is, what does this exile mean? Mm-hmm. What does it mean about Israel's relationship with God? And more than that, what does it mean about God's relationship to the rest of the world? Right. If Israel if, if Israel is gone, if the temple is destroyed, if all these things are happening, what does that mean about God's presence with his people? Right. So the, the idea of the presence of God has been such a big theme. 
in the Bible. We've seen a lot of it. I mean, we've seen it in the Garden of Eden. God is with them, walking with them, and then sin destroys that relationship. But that relationship, there's a hope for it in, in Abraham and his people. There's a hope for it in the Exodus when God brings his people out and he builds the tabernacle and he's now dwelling with them, right? His glory is residing among his people. Mm-hmm. And then you get start to see the sin of Israel and Moses' struggle in interceding for them. So there, there, he's interceding and God says at one point, if you remember in the book of Exodus, Moses just, you know, I'm going to destroy the people and I'll start over with you. And Moses intercedes for them. And then he says, I'm not sure which one comes first. Actually, I could be wrong about this. But he says to Moses, I'm, go- I'm, I'm going to allow you to lead the people and I'll send an angel, but I'm not going to be here personally. I won't be present with you. And Moses pleads with him not to do that. And that's a big, that's a big idea. It's God has to be with his people. Right. If he's not, there's no hope for them. And right. Moses gets that. So we've seen that theme. We saw in First Samuel chapter 4 when the, the Ark of the Covenant is taken by the Philistines. If you remember the um, Hophni and Phinehas, I believe, are the sons of, of Eli, mm-hmm. and they die. And then a child is born, right, named Ichabod. Right. And uh, the mother names him Ichabod, which, you know, kavod is that word glory mm. in Hebrew. Yeah. And it's, I mean, his name means the glory has departed. Mm. And so she was, you know, devastated because the ark was taken, God's presence was gone, the glory had departed from Israel. Mm. Now, of course, we saw in First Samuel 5, God conquers the Philistines by himself. Right. So in, you know, Dagon falls before the Ark of the Covenant. Mm-hmm. We, we see all these things happening that where God's, you know, destroying these people. But that fear is one that's been prevalent is will God's presence and glory depart from Israel? Mm. If it does, there's really no hope. So again and again, we've seen this. And we saw when Solomon prayed at the inauguration of the temple that God's glory filled the temple. So just like the right. tabernacle, God is there, he's residing there. And so that's the hope for Israel is that God is present with them. They can commune with God and therefore they have hope to return to Eden someday. Right. Yeah. So that's the whole point of the tabernacle and the temple like we saw. Yeah. A huge question that keeps coming into my mind when I'm going through this part of Ezekiel is like, will God keep his promises too? We see that theme like over the whole Testament, obviously, like God's people are unfaithful. God is going to continue to be faithful. And like, but the question stands like in these wrath passages, like is God going to keep his covenant? You know? So yeah. that's a big question that I always have when I'm reading it is, wow, like, when's God going to lose patience with his people, you know? Yeah, and will God keep it if they haven't kept it? Right. You know, so there, there is some sense that it's two-sided, right? At least the most mm-hmm. covenants were. So is God still going to fulfill his promises? Yeah. And so now in Ezekiel, we see that God's presence is actually departing. Right. It's it's actually going to leave the temple. Mm-hmm. But God's, so God's presence is a big theme. And what we'll see in Ezekiel is that God is still present with his exiles, Mm -hmm. and that God has a plan to return his presence. God's presence will return to Israel. Right. And so that's the end of the book. That's that's where we're going to get at the very end. So um, if everything is gone, everything's destroyed, is God abandoning his people? Is he leaving his people? The answer is an emphatic no. Yeah. Well, I think some of the most colorful characters we have in the Bible are prophets. So... You know what? Who's who's Ezekiel? What he what is he all about? Yeah. So we see from the first verse of Ezekiel, we see a timestamp in the thirtieth year in the fourth month of the fifth day of the month. So there's not really an indication in the text of what that means. Mm-hmm. Often there'll be a date, you know, in the fifth year of the reign of so and so. Right. There's no there's no explanation for what this means. It's not the thirtieth year of exile. It's not the thirtieth year of anyone's reign. It's just the thirtieth year. And so what a lot of people believe is that 
this is the birthday of Ezekiel. This is the day he's turning 30 years old. Interesting. And Ezekiel is also a priest. We see that in verse 3 of chapter 1. He's a priest. And so 30 years old was when a priest was ordained as a priest. Right. That's when you entered into the ministry, so to speak. So he's a, a priest who's coming of age, and he's but he's in exile. So so this you know day that would be one of celebration for him, very meaningful one for, for him, is is uh, obviously you know marked by sadness and grief that he's not where he should be. He's not ministering in the temple. Yeah. So that's so Ezekiel is of the priestly class, and of course he's also going to be a prophet. So we'll see in Ezekiel that he'll sort of become a picture of. Israel itself, mm-hmm. and of the judgment they're going to face. Right, yeah. So that's unfortunate for Ezekiel because he goes yeah. through a lot of <laughs> really rough of stuff. stuff. Yeah, <laughs> like really rough stuff. Mm. But uh, but that's so that's a little bit about who Ezekiel is. Cool. How's the uh, how's the book structured? The first three verses teach us about Ezekiel's mission. So mm-hmm. we'll see in chapter one the glory of God appear in this amazing you know UFO. UFO. Yeah. No. Uh, and then we'll see <laughs> how God calls him and what his job is supposed to be. It's very similar to. Jeremiah and, and Isaiah, yeah, very similar. And then four to twenty-four chapters, four to twenty-four is God's judgment on Israel. Mm-hmm. So a lot of judgment in this book. Twenty-five to thirty-three is God's judgment on the nations, and then thirty-four to forty-eight is God's rescue and renewal. Yeah. So it'll end with a really beautiful picture. And the very very end cap there is several chapters on this vision he has of the new temple, mm-hmm. and it's very significant. Uh, we'll look at it. There's a lot of detail to it. But we won't examine all of it, obviously, but. It it's there for an important reason. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Ezekiel is actually quite encouraging considering the imagery that's used in the book. It's very like you know, I don't know, jarring. I, I think a lot of the imagery that's used and the language, but it has a ton of really really hopeful, yeah, parts in it. So yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, are you ready to get into the text, chapter one? Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. So the first section, chapters one to three, is Ezekiel's mission. So his mission starts with the appearing of the glory of God. Yeah, he's hanging out by a little river. Yeah, so he's hanging out, and all of a sudden, God's glory appears to him. We see in verse 1, the heavens are opened. It sort of reminds us of the language from the flood. The heavens are opened, mm-hmm. and God comes down, and he appears. Now, what is it that he's seeing? It's very, if you when you read this, maybe you were thinking, you know, what, what in the world is this? And how do you even visualize this or draw this? Maybe you Googled some images and got some really weird <laughs> things. There's all sorts of ideas of what is being portrayed here. So we hear about four living creatures with four faces and four wings, and they don't turn when they move. They just kind of go whatever direction they want to go. We see wheels within wheels mm-hmm. with eyes on the wheels. Very confusing. We and should have so, had a whiteboard and draw yeah, this we, out. Yeah, we could totally yeah. draw this out. It would be yeah. easy to draw. <laughs> uh, yeah. So what a lot of people do say, this is not uncommon now, is the History Channel approach from this show, Ancient Aliens. Ancient Ancient Aliens. Aliens. If you haven't seen it, you got to see it. It's pseudo history at its best. I mean, you know, if you if you don't know much history, it's really fun because you're like, maybe there were aliens. Maybe aliens did everything in history. Like anything that's like strange or unexplained, like aliens, like painting with like balls in the background, like orbs, aliens, you know, anything. So anyway, I I used to watch this as a kid, um, but I remember this about Ezekiel. So no, I would say it's not a UFO. Well, maybe it's unidentified and it's flying and it is an object. So I guess technically, yeah. Is it aliens? Not exactly. Like green men I mean, you know, egg-shaped heads. Angels are not. You know, they they live in heaven. So I guess you could say they're aliens. So maybe this is checking out actually. 
Maybe yeah. he's checking out. So let's look at a few of these verses here. So the four living creatures are described in verses five and following. I won't won't read through that, but the the interesting thing is what it says in verse um, in verse nine that each of them went straight forward without turning as they went. So they're four sided. They're multi directional, so they don't have to move to in order to turn. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's very, very strange. They have to turn in order to go in that direction, I guess you could say. So then we see these wheels. Verse 15 says, Now I looked at the living creatures. I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. So they have a wheel beside them. And the appearance of the wheel and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of barrel, and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. So the same uh, same idea is ascribed to the wheels. So they just like the, the these creatures can go any four of the directions without turning, the wheels are the same way. So they're a wheel with a wheel inside of it so that it can essentially you know roll. Mm-hmm. It's like a spherical wheel or something. So they're, in other words, they're, they're totally mobile. Okay. And then, of course, I have to throw out verse 18 for my friend. Andrew Biederman, who used to have a small group, and they would uh, they loved to to watch the Fast and Furious movies. <laughs> so they love this was like their theme verse, Ezekiel one eighteen, and their rims were tall and awesome. That's it, just <laughs> <laughs> tall and awesome rims. Whatever young man dreams of, and on the top of so there's these wheels and these creatures, and they're able to move in every direction. And at the top of them is the throne of God. So verse twenty two says, over the heads. Of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. Hmm. So God is on top of these four wheels. So you start to get this picture, even if you can't you know, hammer out every single detail of what this is, you get a picture of what he's talking about here. Right. He's talking about a vehicle. Mm-hmm. He's talking about, uh, you could say, that the heavenly chariot. Mm-hmm. The fact that God, you know, chariots back then were were you know, usually two-wheeled, I believe, but they didn't have steering wheels. Mm-hmm. You know, If you wanted to turn, you basically were making a really slow, long turn. Right. They were just designed to go pretty much straight, and so they weren't mobile. And, and God's chariot is completely mobile. He can go wherever he wants. Mm. That's kind of the idea. He's, he's the God over all the earth, and therefore he can go to wherever he's needed whenever right. he wants to. His presence is, is mobile. And it's and it's going to be present everywhere. Yeah. So the, the ultimate four wheel drive machine. Yes. Yeah. There you go. There you go. And so we see this throne on the top, and the the description of the throne is very interesting. So look at verse twenty six. We see kind of the same language being used as in verse twenty two. It says above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance. So he's gonna, he's seeing God. He's beholding God in His glory. Just in some sense, and he describes him in verse twenty-eight. Says, like the appearance of, so the brightness around him was like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on a day of rain. Hmm. So is the appearance of the brightness all around. And we see this imagery later on in the scripture, right? A bow, literally, you know, we would think of it as a rainbow. Yeah. But that same bow that was mentioned with Noah and the, the, the Noahic covenant that God is putting up His bow. He's not making war against humans. That's that same promise is around God's throne. He's remembering right. his promise to preserve the world, to care for his creation. I didn't really realize how much Genesis imagery is in this first chapter. Oh yeah. Because it kind of concludes too with like the idea of a garden, right? So 
Oh yeah, yeah. The, the Genesis, <clears throat> the Genesis yeah. connections are huge. So yeah. just that word "expanse." So verse yeah, twenty-two, exactly. verse twenty-six. There's a few other places it's used here, but that word "expanse" or "firmament" is used uh, to, nine uh, times. Proof flat Earth. Yes, yeah. it's used nine <laughs> times in Genesis one. It's used five times in the book of Ezekiel, and four of them are in this chapter. Mm. And then it's used three times in the rest of the Old Testament. Wow. So there's a high concentration in terms of that word right. and the overlap between the, the Genesis 1 and, and Ezekiel 1. So mm. there's this focus on this is the God of creation. And again, that idea from Genesis 1 of the presence of God in Eden. Mm. Genesis yeah. 1 and 2, God's, God's creation temple that was contained at Eden that was meant to fill the entire earth but was mm. broken because of sin. Right. Now God's presence, that same presence is now mobile. Mm. Maybe it always has been, you know, but the idea is is displayed in order to show Ezekiel. I mean, this the glory of God is appearing to him while he's in exile. Right. He's in the yeah. Kibar Canal. I mean, he's yeah, he's temple, far away. Right? So this is unusual. Mm. This is not this is unexpected. And so he's gonna learn a lot from this. So this is a fundamental part of his call, seeing the the likeness of the glory of God, mm. as he mentions it at the, at the end of the section. So so awesome the point of all chapter. this, yeah, is that God is gonna go where he wants to go. And then chapter two, we see more of Ezekiel's call. So God has appeared. He's overwhelmed. Ezekiel, Ezekiel falls on his face. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, I mean, he can't handle what he's seeing. It's, it's too much for him. And so verse two, it says, As he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. So God's Spirit fills him, and it starts to move him. So just as God's presence or spirit would fill the temple, mm-hmm. it's now filling Ezekiel, yeah. and it's going to fill him for a specific purpose. He's to speak God's truth and to fulfill his mission, and he's going to be speaking about that presence mm. to God's people, right? prophesying, t- telling them how they should follow and obey God. Oh. I had a question. Why, yeah. why is Ezekiel called the son of man? Um, because he's a man. Yeah, <laughs> but there is yeah not God, <laughs> but there is a connection I think between Daniel's use of the Son of Man and Ezekiel's, mm-hmm. the high usage in both. Yeah, um, we'll look at it in Daniel more because I think the Daniel use is very significant in terms of how Jesus mm-hmm. speaks of himself as a Son of Man. Right, exactly. But uh, but no, I'm, I'm something. So I'm sure there's there's more of a reason for it than I know. I mean, but, yeah, I, don't, I just don't know. It's, and it's used, like, even in these first couple chapters all the time. Every time God addresses him, he's like, son of man. Like, mm-hmm. is it a condescension or something? Or, like, I don't know. I don't know. <clears throat> so verse 3, yeah, he says, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, mm-hmm. to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. So that's encouraging, right? So he's sending him to rebels. So it's going to go well, right, God? That's what you're going to tell me? <laughs> well, he says, verse 5, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for yeah. they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Okay, so that's not super encouraging. I, I'd want to he- hear God say, they're going to listen to you. Right. Uh, verse 6, And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions, <laughs> be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. So this is starting to sound like he's setting him up for... Them not listening to him, right? right? Uh, why would kind you, of kind you of you like Isaiah and Jeremiah as well, you know? Right, yeah. Can you, can you imagine sitting on a scorpion? <laughs> that sounds not fun. That'd be horrible. Yeah, that's that'd be rough. I don't even want to think about it right now. <laughs> and you shall, verse seven, you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are rebellious house. So Bummer. you have to speak. You have to you have to warn, and um, 
And we see this scroll at the end of this chapter. He's given a scroll. So, so the hand is outstretched, gives him a scroll. And verse 10 says, He spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So it's a scroll. You don't usually write on the front and the back of a scroll. Hmm. So this kind of indicates there's a lot. It's You're trying to get as much as you can in there. There's yeah. a lot of important words that are written. And so it's filled with these words. And so in chapter 3, God tells him to eat the scroll. Mm-hmm. And so he's, he's ingesting God's words in order to speak them to God's people. No. And so, and, and it's funny because it gets even, you know, chapter two is like, ah, they, it sounds like they're not going to listen. And then in verse, th- in chapter three, verse five, it's pretty clear they're not going to listen. So he says, verse five, for you are not sent to people of sp- foreign speech in a hard language, but to the house of Israel. So I'm not, I'm not sending you to someone whose language you don't speak. Right. So that means it's, it's a better thing, right? Well, no, not exactly. He says, surely if I sent you to such, meaning foreigners, they would listen to you. <laughs> so even if you couldn't speak their language, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Hmm. So they are not going to listen to you because they have not listened to God. Right. And that's a good reminder for us. If we're bringing God's word to people, it, it's up to God. I mean, it's up to God to change their hearts. Right. It's not up to something that we have to say. So God, God gives him more of his mission in chapter 3, starting in verse 16. He talks about this, this watchman idea. Mm-hmm. So he says, your job, Ezekiel, is to be a watchman, a watcher on the walls, a lookout, right, a sentry. You're watching for danger, and if you don't tell people the danger and they die, then it's your fault. Right. But if you warn them and then they die... Right, they don't listen and they die. That's their fault. Right, it's on them. And so he's reminding Ezekiel of what his mission is, what what he has to do. He has to speak the truth and warn people, and it's up to them to respond. It's up to God to change their heart. Mm. So we see the very end here. He, he says, verse twenty five, chapter three. He says, "You son of man, behold, cords will be placed upon you, and you shall be bound with them, so that you cannot go out among the people." So he gets tied up with ropes. And then in verse 26, he says, I will make the, your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you, will, you shall be mute and unable to reprove them for their rebellious house. So he's going to make Israel tied up, or Ezekiel tied up and Ezekiel mute. <laughs> so we're starting to see some of this picture of, okay, how God's going to communicate through Ezekiel. It's going to be weird. So if he can't speak, he's going to be using a lot of, a lot of images, a lot of these right. sign acts. Mm-hmm. So he's going to do even more crazy stuff than we saw in in uh, you know Jeremiah, he's going to do a lot of interesting things, and at times God will speak through him, open his mouth and speak through him. But generally speaking, he's going to be mute, yeah. to live his life mute. It's a very strange thing. Oh, this is great. This is very. I mean, it's serious, but it's because it's what it's symbolizing is very serious, right? Yeah. But it's also very entertaining for us as readers. I think that's yeah, <laughs> it, it is. So chapter four, we enter into a new section. So four to twenty-four. Those chapters are all about God's judgment on Israel, mm-hmm. and so. Ezekiel's going to start doing these different actions, these different signs. So chapter 4 starts with this. So what it says, I'll I'll read it here, chapter 4, verse 1. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem. So write on it, (laughs) Jerusalem. This is a, he's going to play action figures here and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it. So he's just, he's like laying in the middle of the city. He's laying in his town. <laughs> take a right? cradle and make a wall. <laughs> Playing with, right? So set camps against him, plant battering rams against it all around. 
and you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron <laughs> wall between you and the city and set your face toward it. So you got all your little action figures and set up. I'd love to have seen what he did, like how detailed he was in like building like battering rams. And, right. Uh, maybe he had fun. Who knows? Is this like those, you know, vast like model, you know, Civil War figurine, yes. you know, enactments? Like those dudes who are super into those kind of weird things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, if that's you, more power to you. Yeah. It's biblical, yeah. but what's with the what's with the iron griddle, right? That's the that's the question. So the, all the city makes sense, but the the idea there is that Ezekiel at this point is representing God mm-hmm. looking down on the city of mm. of Israel and basically hiding his face right. from them, mm. separating himself from them is the idea. So you so the, the all these siege works against them, all these battering rams, they're being attacked, and God is turning his face away. Do you think like he was like throwing stones and stuff like from heaven? Yeah, or that Ezekiel was Ezekiel, you know, like enacting the the wrath of God for sure. Uh, I'm sure he was. Yeah. Yeah. So, so (laughs) that's the first sign. It's very odd, but it's to point to that God is going to send His people into exile, exile, and judgment, all that. And then verse four, the second thing says, "Then lie on your left side." This is brutal. Yeah, and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it for the number. Of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assigned to you a number of days, 390 days equal to the number of years for their punishment. So he had to lie on one side for 390 days. And then in verse 6, we see he had to switch to the other side for 40, 40 days <laughs> to symbolize the judgment of Jerusalem for 40 years. So, yeah, this is, this is um, pretty brutal. So this is this is the next thing, and of course, verse eight: I will place cords upon you, so you cannot turn from one side to the other until you've completed the day of your seat. So you're stuck in this position and until you have finished that punishment. Right. And again, pointing to Israel having to fulfill their punishment mm-hmm. that God has has laid out this number of years for them to be punished. And then one of my favorite parts in the whole book, I think, <laughs> is, cha- is chapter four, verse nine. <laughs> it's not, <so>, not thirty seven. <laughs> again, again, okay. This kind of reminds me of the Daniel diet. Yeah. Be careful what you're doing, why you're doing it. Okay, so Ezekiel, Ezekiel uh, chapter 4, verse 9, it says, And you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and ammer, and put them into a single vessel and make bread from them. Okay, so, and this is while he's lying on his side, right? So this is part of the, the lying on the side time. So here's the thing. So there's actually, I, I took an Ezekiel class when I was in college, and the, the professor pointed out that there's this thing called Ezekiel bread. I don't know if they still make it. Mm. So it's this company it makes Ezekiel bread. You can check out like it's like Whole Foods might have it. And on it, it'll use this verse. <laughs> Essentially, that was trying to argue is that this is a divine recipe for a super healthy bread that you can use and be like God. Well, they're not baking be like properly, the, pro- the prophet. Probably. Yeah. Unless so they are. why this is really funny. There's a couple reasons why this is really funny. Okay. So what is God doing when he's saying, Get all these different types of grain and mix them together. Mm-hmm. He's essentially pointing to the fact that during the siege, they're not going to have any food. So you have to scrounge a little bit of this, a little bit of that, right, in order to make a loaf of bread. Right. And the whole point is that this is disgusting and terrible. Now, we know that this is part of it because he goes on with more instructions. So he says, and you, uh, verse, verse 12, he says, And you shall eat it. So you, you make this bread and you eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. Mm. 
So I, I really hope that Ezekiel bread is faithful to the biblical text, the entire text of the Bible. I mean, I and just, it's cooked over human dung. I just have to say this: if if anybody, if any of you listening have ever smoked meat before, you know that the fuel you use imparts a certain type of flavor to the food that you're eating. That's that's a good point. Yeah. So yeah, disgusting, <laughs> disgusting. And of course, you know. Um, and he's, what he's pointing to is they're going to have to eat bread and it's going to be unclean. Mm-hmm. They're going to be in this terrible position because they've walked away from God, right? <laughs> they're going to be starving. They're going to be... And so Ezekiel begs him, like, please, oh, just Lord. can you not... <laughs> please, yeah, which, I, which that should be it should be on the back of, <laughs> of the Ezekiel bread, you know, uh, container. Like, please, God, please don't make me, me eat this. Verse 14, oh, Lord God, behold, I've never defiled myself. Please don't make me eat this. He's saying. Yeah. And then God says, okay, you can use... You know, cow dung. You can use animal dung instead of human, human dung as a mercy. Which, I mean, it is a little better. Is a lot better, <laughs> but still, yeah, still. I've I've driven through Colinga. I've driven through <laughs> Bakersfield or whatever. I know that smell is not what I would want in my bread, right? Or just anywhere. So, I'm sure someone listening to this is from like Texas or the South, and they're like surrounded by by cow dung or something, <laughs> and they love the smell. Mm. Not me. Home. So anyway, so God's going to, at the end of this chapter, break their supply of bread. He's going to leave them without what they need, and they're going to, they're going to dismay, right? That's the whole point of this. Yeah. That's the judgment of God. So Ezekiel's acting this out to show them what they're going to go through. Mm-hmm. He's a picture. He's at times kind of standing in for God, and at times representing the people of Israel themselves and what they're going to endure. Mm. Chapter 5, he decides to cut his hair. So he decides to shave his head. This one's great. And take all the which okay. So this was very shameful thing. This was not something that they did. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Men didn't shave their heads, and um, so he's shaving his head, shaving his beard, and getting all the hair. And he's going and weighing it out. So he puts it in a scale and weighs it out and divides all of it into three different parts. Mm-hmm. And he takes it says, chapter five verse two. He takes a third part and he throws it into the fire, and then he takes a third part and he throws it up in the air and starts hitting it with his sword mm-hmm. around the entire city. So chasing it in the wind and, <laughs> and ch- trying to chop it. And then a third part he throws into the wind. But he says, verse 3, you shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe. So the idea here is th- this is a picture for the people of Israel, right? Some will die by the, the fire, mm-hmm. in the burning of the city, some will die by the sword, and right. some will be taken captive to a distant land. Right. But there's like some small remnant that will be saved. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, God will preserve some small remnant. But then verse 4 says, and of these again, you shall take some and cast them in the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. <laughs> so take even some of those. So even the small amount that's saved will also face judgment. So right. this is the, speaking of the end that God's going to make to his people. And he goes on to explain that in more depth in this chapter. So these all these pictures of the judgment of God, it's very, it's very bizarre, very creative depiction, I guess. And we see that that explanation in chapter five, verse twelve. A third part third part of you shall die of pestilence, a third mm-hmm. part by the sword, a third part I will scatter. So and this is how God is going to show them who he is, right? And they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy. So God is not going to stand for the way that they've worshipped idols, and He's going to bring judgment upon them in order to teach them and bring them back to Him. Right. So this is kind of symbols we see again and again in Ezekiel. They're very interesting. Chapter six speaks to the judgment of idolatry and the destruction of the high places, mm-hmm. which we saw so much about 
in books like First and Second Kings and Chronicles, yeah. right? That this was an ongoing issue for them was worshiping idols or these high places, which were places sometimes they worshiped Yahweh, mm-hmm. but in a way that God had not commanded. Right. And so it was worshiping God in their own image, in their own method. Uh, it wasn't honoring to God. It wasn't his wasn't his preferred method, what he commanded. So what's God going to do to these people who are bowing before idols? Well, verse four of chapter six. Your altars shall become desolate, and your incense altars shall be broken, and I will cast you down slain before your idols, and I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones around your altars. So you've been bowing to these idols, and now I'm going to make you bow before the idols as as dead people. Hmm. It's a graphic depiction, but this this is the punishment for idolatry. Verse 7, and the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the Lord. God wants them to know that he is who he says he is. So let's go, go to chapter 8. We see it. We see some interesting stuff in chapter 8. So chapters 8 and through 11 really is a vision of Ezekiel. So he had the initial vision, mm-hmm. the glory of God. Now he has a vision of the temple. Now remember this, because at the end of the book, he'll have a, another vision of a temple. And it's meant to relate to this. Right. It's meant to point back to this. So w- what's happening in this section? Well, God brings him in the spirit to sort of see different parts of the temple in Jerusalem. So remember, he's not in Jerusalem. He's in exile. So he's getting a glimpse as to what's happening with God's people in Jerusalem. And this, I mean, this is a Ezekiel the priest. Mm-hmm. This is his first time into the inner inner parts of the temple, right? This, I mean, he, I'm sure he was there as a child, uh, very possibly, but... He hasn't been there to minister, so he's getting to go into the temple. So this is an exciting thing. And what he sees is idolatry all over the temple. So ch- so chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 4. So this, this man is bringing him around, showing him what's happening. And he sees the, an image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy in the temple. So we see a few different ways these idols are depicted. So verse 5 is sort of the first idol. Um, it says, uh, he says, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. So in the temple, right, there's a, an image, a, an idol that's being worshipped. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary? Hmm. So... They're driving me out. My glory is here, and they're driving it out. Right. They don't want me here. And so they're making a separation between them and God. So the temple, the place that was meant to be a connection between God and man, a return to Eden, right. is becoming a place of idolatry and destruction. It's it's really bad, and it gets worse. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. I mean, at the end of everything, is just a refrain from God, but you will see still greater abominations. Right? Yeah, it gets worse. No. But don't worry, it gets worse. Right, Verse 10, <laughs> idol, idol number two is... We see, he says, I went, he goes into the, the inner area of the temple, and he's, what he sees are images of creeping things and beasts and mm. idols, images written on the walls, yeah. uh, images that they're worshiping. And it says, verse 11, before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. These are the top leaders. I mean, the 70 elders, kind of like what we would think of as the Sanhedrin mm-hmm. in Jesus' day, right? I mean, the top leaders, the 70 top leaders. And with them, Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan. 
So who's who's Jazaniah, son of Shaphan? Shaphan was a leader under Josiah, hmm. part of his religious reforms, one of the an upstanding righteous leader among the people. And I think it was his brother who defended uh, Jerusalem. Hmm. Or sorry, sorry, defended uh, Jeremiah. That's the guy's name. Defended Jeremiah. And so we have, I mean, a major problem here, which is that someone who is part of a really righteous family, one generation removed, is worshiping idols in the temple hmm. and all the leaders with him. So there's, I mean, this is hopeless. Right. Verse 14, again, it, it gets worse, right? Don't worry, it gets worse. Verse 14, we see women weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz was a god of fertility who he would die every year and come back to life. Hmm. And here's a picture of, you know, new life in the world and in the crops and all that sort of stuff. So they're worshiping a Canaanite idol. And then number four, Verse 16, he goes into the inner court of the house of the Lord and he sees 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord worshiping the sun. So their mm. backs are to God and they're facing the sun yeah. in order to, to worship and to desecrate the temple. Right. So it's, it's very bad. So the conclusion of all of this, verse 18, <laughs> God says, I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, mm. nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Wow. So this this shows us one of the fundamental problems that we've already seen, but mm. it's in, in light of Ezekiel's focus, which is the presence of God. Mm. Is God present with his people? This is showing the, the, the fundamental issue. God's people have sinned. They've been driving him away. They don't want him, and therefore they don't want his protection. They don't want his blessing. All right. Don't forget, when we sin, we are doing a significant thing in pushing God away. Right. And we're, we're very lucky, we're very blessed people that God is not so easily pushed away, mm. that he's given us the blood of his son, but we have to take that very seriously. Right. That this, that, that's the reason why sin leads to hell. That's the reason why in our temporary lives, sin does not lead to blessing is because it's a, it's a running away from God, mm. the pushing away of God. So chapter nine, we see there's a, essentially uh, one dressed like a priest, one dressed in, in a linen garment is sent into the town. So what's going to happen is God's going to just slaughter his people. Mm -hmm. And what he does is he takes a, a pen or a pencil and he starts to mark the foreheads of men, <laughs> verse verse four, right? Mark those who, um, who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And, and so he's marking those who are his, who are upset, about this in order to save them, to deliver right. them. So this, this priest-like figure is interceding for them. Mm -hmm. And then verse five, it says, and to the others, he said, my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Hmm. And then it says, but touch not one, no one on whom is the mark. This just sounds like the Passover. Right, yeah, exactly. M marks that God will pass over and the rest of the city he's passing through in right. judgment. And so there's a certain priest figure who is doing that work of claiming those who are his mm. by his mark. So very interesting chapter. Chapter 10, we actually see God's presence, his glory leaving the temple. Yeah, sadly. It's sort of a progressive thing moving outside of the temple. And, and so this is, this is very important. So God, the glory has actually departed. Mm -hmm. God's presence is, is actually gone from his people. And if that's true, there's no hope for them. Right. They're going to be destroyed. Right. It's inevitable. So verse 18, 19, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. 
And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. So God's presence is moving out and away from his people. Hmm. So we'll, we'll do one more chapter here because I want to get to a little bit of good news <laughs> before we, before we uh, stop for today. Because there is good news even in the book of Ezekiel, mm-hmm. even in this early section. So chapter 11, we see, well, before we get to the good news, there's more bad. So there's essentially was a saying among the people in chapter 11, verse 3. They said, the city is the cauldron and we are the meat. Mm-hmm. So the idea there is this is, a, this is a pot, you know, and we're the meat inside of it. And we're, the, the cauldron protects the meat mm-hmm. from contamination or from things outside of it. So, hey, look, we're safe because we got these walls around us. And essentially what Ezekiel says is, you are the you are the meat, right? The dead people that are is in your city. Those are the meat, <laughs> and the cauldron is the city. And I'm going to cook them, right? Exactly. Right? And I'm <laughs> yeah. going to, and the rest of you are going to go to exile. So it's a you know kind of a confusing section, but that's what it's talking about. And then Ezekiel despairs, right? He says, "Ah, oh Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel?" And so God gives a word of encouragement. In the rest of the section here in chapter six, chapter mm-hmm. eleven, in verse sixteen, yep. he says, "Thus says the Lord: Though I remove them far off among the nations, and though I scatter them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Mm-hmm. There is a sanctuary. There is a temple. It's me. It's my presence, which is with my people right. in exile." And he says, he goes on to say, I'm going to gather you, right? I'm going to take you out of these lands eventually, and I'm going to bring you back to this, this nation. Mm-hmm. And verse 19, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Yeah. This is the same new covenant language. Right. I'm going to give them a new heart so they can become alive, that they can walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Hmm. So very familiar language. Right. God is speaking to that hope, even as his glory is leaving. Mm-hmm. Even as his glory is departing, God is saying, there is hope because of my covenant, my promise, what I'm going to do because I'm with my people, even when they're in exile. Yeah, amen. Yeah, great. I'm glad we ended on a good note with yeah. uh, today's uh, you know content. Um, so how does the New Testament connect? How does the gospel connect to these uh, passages so far? Well, we, we obviously see, I mean, there's a lot of things we could say, right? Just in terms of that figure of the the priestly figure in chapter nine, yeah, who's mediator. marking people. That yeah. obvious. I'm sure most of us at this point, you made that connection yourself, right? Mm-hmm. There's that that really is reflective of the work of Christ right. to rescue, to mark those who are His, to rescue them, to cover them with His with His blood. Right. Obviously, you know, there's a few interesting things. Jesus starts His ministry at 30 years old. Also, yeah, He starts at 30 years old, ministers for three years. Um, so he's the same age as Ezekiel. He's also that age that was the coming of age for a, a priest. Mm-hmm. So it's significant in a few ways. We've seen, you know, in John chapter one, we see that Jesus is the embodiment of the presence of God, mm-hmm. right? I mean, John is incredibly explicit about this. When Jesus comes, he comes to be God with us, right? Emmanuel. Right. And so, um, so with this, you know, chapter one, verse 14 of the Gospel of John, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is the true presence of God. Mm-hmm. Come to be with us, to dwell with us. Again, that word for dwelling among us is tabernacling among us, right? He is the true presence of God and the true temple of God. 
Yeah. So God's plan of removing his presence from the temple, in a sense, that was always the plan because God needed to come to us in the right. truest sense, which was to become one of us, to, to you know, intercede for us, to save us. Hmm. There's, there's no way that sinful humans were going to be able to, to work with God's presence in terms of sacrifices and all that. They need, we needed God to come down and to pay the price himself. Yeah, amen. So it's very, some very simple things, but hopefully some connections that people made as they yeah. were reading through this. I think one more thing is just, you know, the reality of and the justice of God's wrath on sin. So the individual that sins against God is, is due the wrath of God, and the only way to be rid of the wrath of God is to turn to Jesus, and that's the whole hope that's in Ezekiel here and the, the whole Bible, really. Yeah, So, and we'll see a lot more of that next week. Yeah, amen. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for Daily Gospel. We'll see you next week.